0: All right, this is lesson five of uh, our new series on divine judgment. And we're introducing a new concept in this topic called active judgment. And I, like I've said a couple times before, this is a working model for me. I've, I've been doing a lot of research. I can't, find, I can't find any work out there or breakdown theologically of divine judgment in the depth that I'm trying to scratch at it. It doesn't mean it's not out there. It might be hidden under fancy terms that would blow over our head because they're written by guys trying to get their THD in theology. So I want to encourage you, as I'm teaching this, if you have any questions or things aren't clear, please email me or text me or email the church or contact us. Because if you have questions, it might help our research and study and working out of all this. So as I've been saying over and over again, this is kind of like a working model. It's the best thing I can see. In trying to explain all this subject of divine judgment. And what really spurred this on was that because of the whole coronavirus and it's affecting the whole world, there's a lot of questions right now about divine judgment. And is this the judgment of God? What does the judgment of God look like? And even as some Christians erroneously teach, uh, God doesn't judge anymore. He got saved at the cross, you know. And so now that he got saved at the cross, uh, everything goes because God loves and we're saved by grace. Now that's heresy. So that's why we're studying all this. So let's look at this, because we have a little bit of a lengthier, or I should say perhaps a meatier, lesson. We previously viewed divine judgment in terms of a spectral concept. That means concerning a spectrum. A spectral concept comparing positive versus negative judgment. And we, I've got that little spectral down here at the bottom. Positive judgment resulting in rewards and promotion, and negative judgment ending in abandonment, wrath, and destruction. Obviously, we don't want to end up on the negative side of judgment, but as we pointed out, in order for you to be promoted and rewarded, you have to still be judged. Everything in life rises and falls on judgment. We also determine that all such adjudication initially begins with self-judgment. Before you're demoted and sent to hell or before you're rewarded and sent to heaven, you're self-judging yourself. Even in the conviction of an altar call in an evangelistic service, you have to judge yourself. You hear and feel what the Spirit of God is doing, and you self-judge and say, the Holy Ghost is right. I am a sinner, and I need this Savior, and you answer it. Or you can self-judge and say, I'm, I'm okay, and i got to get out of this place. Either way, it's self-judgment. Everything begins with self-judgment. Even parenting, the first thing you start teaching your kids is morality, code of ethics, so that they can begin to self-judge and self Regulate. This is just common sense. And this is why, as we entrench ourselves in the subject of judgment and we see all the aspects of it, it's why we understand what a heresy and fallacy it is for our modern culture to be so allergic to judgment. And to be, uh, we know, we, we, we even say to ourselves, I'm not trying to judge. I know, I'm, I'm not trying to be judgy. You should be. You should be trying to be judgy. You should be critical. Not to condemnation, not to cast people to hell, but just to be safe and sane. And honestly, everybody that says that's so judgy is they're themselves very judgmental, and that's okay. We're all designed to be judgmental. What we don't want to do is cast somebody off as altogether hopeless or worthy of hell. That's, that's where we don't stand on this. But everything else, we're judgmental on. This is too hot. This is too cold. That's right. That's wrong. You hurt my feelings. Uh, I don't want to do this. That's too long. That's too whatever. It's just insane for our culture to say they're just so judgy. I want a church where it's not judgy. Well, then you're going to go to hell because everything, if you're going to get good at it, requires judgment. You're going to be a hobo on welfare the rest of your life if you don't want to be judged. You'll be a crackhead living in a tent in the woods on the backside of a Costco somewhere if you don't want to be judged. And then after that is eternal judgment. So what we're seeing is just judge me as much as you want to right now. It's all for my good. And even if you mean it maliciously, it's still for my good. Get some thicker skin and grow up. All right. All of a sudden, academia started running through my mind. Let me back up and just throw this out there. The whole reason academia developed this notion of critical thinking for education system was so that teachers didn't have to teach anymore because it wasn't about communicating knowledge. Knowledge doesn't matter. Let's teach the children how to critically think because knowledge, you can get knowledge the rest of your life. Let's teach them how to deconstruct history and deconstruct math and deconstruct and deconstruct. So let's now, that's the big push in the last 40 years is critical thinking, not dialectic education excuse me, didactic education, but this dialectic of critical thinking. That's all an embracing of no judgy, no judgy, no judgy. It's just so judgy, and you're not? Stop the insanity. Successful self-judgment will result in rewards, while failed self-judgment ends in some form of punishment. Always does. When you fail to properly self-judge, it always ends in punishment. So let me introduce or present to you our spectrum again for positive judgment. We see it increasing from left to right. You begin with self-judgment. Then you have correction, then evaluation, then approval, then promotion, then rewards. That's the spectrum of positive judgment. That just means you're judged, and at the end it's something good. And then, of course, we have negative judgment, which is what most people think of when we talk about judgment. Everybody's just allergic to judgment because they assume it's all negative But how can we reward you, promote you, or give you a raise or a diploma of graduation without judging you? What about the ACTs and the SATs and the GREs? And what about all these tests? Those are all forms of systematic judgment. But we see in socialism, which is sweeping our nation, people want money for nothing. And if you get money for nothing, your life is worth nothing. I mean, a waste of a life is to live in the ghetto. Receive a government check and do nothing. That's a wasted life. And if you want to leave the ghetto, you can. But you have to overcome your own cultural roadblocks to do so. Amen. Just by the way, here in Cookville, our ghettos are full of white people. So this isn't a racial statement. It's a statement of culture. If all you hear is black when I say ghetto, you're racist. Amen. We're all, this is going to be a good service day. I mean, This is going to be a good set of services. I'm out of the gate. We're already equally offending everybody. Huh. So negative judgment starts off with self-judgment, then correction, rebuke. And if you, if you don't receive the rebuke, then you get resistance. Then opposition, after God resists you and you don't submit, he just straight out opposes you. Remember he said in the Revelation chapter 2, he said, repent or else I will come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He told that to a church. I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. I don't want that. After opposition, we see in the total picture of the Bible, once God opposes you and you don't submit, then he just abandons you. Oh, He'll never leave me nor forsake me when you serve him. But Peter says the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And he gives people up. Romans 1 talks about giving people up three times. Galatians talks about people being amputated from the body of Christ. So we can cling to he'll never leave me nor forsake me. That's the promise for the Christian who's seeking God and under opposition. You don't have such a promise when you make God your enemy. Abandonment and then after abandonment and you're still belligerent. It's just wrath and vengeance. And I want to reiterate to you, God is not who got saved at the cross of Calvary. He does not change. How he relates to us might change based on his work in the earth through Jesus Christ, but he is still a God of vengeance, and he's still a God of wrath. He is still called the Avenger, and he even promised that he would avenge his saints of their injustices. Amen. Let us now add to our working model. We have been looking at positive judgment versus negative. Let's add to our working model of divine judgment the concepts of active judgment and passive judgment. And we'll be looking at these over the next two weeks. Active judgment and passive judgment. Passive judgment will be discussed next lesson. This lesson is all about active judgment. All right. So let me present this to you. It's a pretty simple concept. Remember that the purpose of all judgment is to eliminate sin and glorify God. The purpose of all judgment, even in your home, is to eliminate rebellion out of your kids and teach them what is acceptable and unacceptable, to glorify you, to glorify your kids, and ultimately to glorify God. We discipline children as acts of judgment so that we can curve them, we can uh, uh, train them, that we can discipline them and make them citizens of Earth that don't end up in prison or on welfare. Amen. Amen. That's why we do the judgment in the little things. See, if you invest Disciplining children is like the rules of investments. Invest a lot when you're in your 20s, and you don't have to invest a lot when you're older. Invest in your kids when they're one and two and three and four, and you don't have to worry about bail at 15 and 18. Amen. So pay me now or pay me later, but if you pay me later, it's with interest, and it's going to be painful. There comes a time where sin has grown so great and egregious to God that it must be stomped out. And that is what we see with active judgment. Active judgment is God effectively striking sin down to eliminate it. Because it is, he's let it, let it go and let it go and let it go and let it go. And that's enough. We will define active judgment as the wrath of God being kindled against a person or a people. That is, it could be a church, it could be a nation, it could be a city, it could be a tribe. In an act of demotion, abandonment, or destruction, that's act of judgment. Act of judgment is the manifestation of God as Jehovah Makeh, which is, I am the Lord who smites. That is one of his natures. That is not in the list of the seven redemptive names because there is no redemption in that name. There is only the divine character that I tried to redeem you, you resisted me, and I'm done. And we'll say it over and over again. God is long-suffering, but He is not forever suffering. He is merciful, but He is not forever merciful. There comes a time where He's had enough. And I I think we get that. It takes a lot of bad progressive Christian doctrine to try to unteach that basic concept. We see it even reflected in us as parents that there gets a point where we're done giving mercy to our kids, and that's it. Go stand by the paddle or go to your room, or give that to me. I'm taking it away. You're grounded. There comes a point when even the most progressive, Unitarian, seeker-friendly preacher has had enough with his eight-year-old. And if your doctrine in your family doesn't reflect your doctrine with God, you're a hypocrite. Because part of your nature as a father or a mother is reflected from God. It's a reflection of His nature. You don't just let anything just go and go and go and go and go because, oh, this is a love house, this is a grace house, this is a non-judgment zone. Even, I've made the point. Even the bartender will say, that's enough, Mr. Bouncer, please. Even the gangs will kick out members. Even ISIS says, that's too much. you you got to go get a camel, go away. We don't do that here. <laughs> even ISIS kills their own people when they break laws. Amen. Active judgment is God being proactive against sin in order to silence it. God judges sin to silence it and to remove the stench of it from his nostrils. And that's a concept we have to understand. You and I think sin is just between us and whoever we're sinning with. And that is not the case according to the Bible. Sin has an aroma. Sin has a noise. Sin has a disrupting force in the spirit. And the Bible presents it to us as it reaches to heaven and it begins to irritate God. And eventually he's had enough of it. And he'll send his preachers and his prophets and his word. And now in the New Testament, his Holy Spirit to convict you and to adjure thee to stop it. So you'll quit irritating God or grieving his spirit. And if you won't, something happens and it gets stopped. And that's the pattern you see over and over and over again in the Bible. That's why, you know, the progressive Christian says, well, who are you to judge me? My sin's not hurting anybody. Your sin hurts everybody. It affects the body of Christ. It affects your family. It affects the loved ones. It affects those you don't love. It irritates God. It disrupts the spirit of God. If there's there's insurrection or disunity in the church, it grieves God and God can't move. It's okay if I have a grudge against Mr. Rick. No, it is not okay. It grieves the Spirit of God. It disrupts our church services. It's selfish for you to stay offended, to stay embittered, to hold a grudge and come to church. It's selfish because it hurts the rest of us. And that's why if you come to church with any of these sins, the service in a Holy Ghost church will always be directed towards that because as we're going to see, it's a stench in the nostrils of God. It's a noise in his ears. It's a disruption to his peace. And he's going to deal with it. Just like if you're trying to get some sleep or you're, you're the God of all peace. Or let's say you like peace in your home and the two kids are in the back bedroom screaming at each other. You will get up and go deal with that. You will deal with whatever is disrupting your divine peace. At least you should. I think we all do. And that's we get that nature from God. The problem is when folks are used to living in chaos And when you're used to living in chaos, you drown out all sin and chaos. It's just the norm. And it shouldn't be that way. Genesis 18 21, God said, I will go, the Lord Jesus, I will go down now to Sodom and Gomorrah and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. So the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is number one, pride, according to Ezekiel, it was pride, it was abundance of bread, it was idleness. It was not helping the poor or the needy, and then it was abominations. We just think of it as sodomy and gomorrah (laughs) We just think of it as sexual perversion. But Ezekiel is very clear. The first sin was pride, then abundance of bread, then idleness. That sounds like the U.S. of A., But because of pride, abundance of bread, and idleness, you had time to to study, research, and experiment with all these weird, gross sins. In the third world developing nations, when there's not enough food and there's not enough downtime, you don't have a lot of sexual sin because they're living hand to mouth. But God says, this noise, the cry of their sin, has come up to heaven, and I'm going to come down and see, is it exactly how bad I've heard it? And that lets you know your sin has a noise that cries out to God even when you're not humble enough or hungry enough to do so. Your sin will cry, and it's not the good kind of cry. The the spiritual tumult of Sodom's sin was so loud it was heard in heaven. The Lord came down to inspect and see if it was as bad as he was hearing. It was. The noise was about to be silenced. That's a terrifying thought. Even with Abraham's intercession, it still got stomped out. Isaiah 65, God's complaining. He says to those who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These people are smoke in my nostrils. Anybody been at a campfire and just had to sit there and breathe smoke? Mr. Rick, you were a firefighter. Irritating, isn't it? Deadly. Yeah, If you've ever been around a campfire, the wind shifts, everybody moves their chairs. (laughs) Not just to keep the smoke smell out of your hair. You just don't want to breathe it. God says of his own people, there's smoke in my nostrils. This isn't a sweet-smelling savor. This isn't the aroma of incense. This is, you're burning my sinuses. A fire that burns all day. There's never a time when they aren't smoke in my nostrils. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosoms, which means judgment. That passage is worth going and looking at. We didn't look at it or write it all down for time's sake. But God is referring here to people that he, in the previous few verses, he calls them rebellious, provocative, idolatrous, and lawbreakers. And these are the ones who think they are too holy. That's why it's irritating God. God described their sin as smoke in his nostrils. He was about to put their fire out. You see, crushing sin is really not so much about you, but glorifying God and bringing his peace back to him. When you realize it that way, you see how merciful he really is because this earth, this globe, is nothing but a disgusting stench to him. And he is so long-suffering, so merciful to tolerate its existence with all the rape, all the fornication, all the idolatry, all the God-mockery, all the atheism, all the pride, all the theft, all the adultery. This thing is altogether a smoking stench and a noisy tumult to God, and he tolerates it because of his mercy except it will not always be there. Because not only will he wipe out all of his enemies, we know, he's going to burn this planet away and start from scratch. Amen. Zechariah 6, 8. Then cried he upon me. It's amazing. The angel cried upon the man, not to him, but upon him. And he spake unto me, saying, Behold these, the four spirits of the heavens, with horse spirits, which is pretty spooky, these are they that go forth toward the north country. They have quieted my spirit in the north country. So it's a pretty trippy vision. Zachariah sees it. He sees chariots, four chariots, and he says, What are these? And the four chariots are pulled by four types of horses, uh, grizzled horses, strong horses, bay horses, etc. We see them again in the Revelation. So there are men in chariots being pulled by horses, and they're called the four spirits of the heavens. Now, why an angel needs to be pulled by a divine chariot, by spirit horses, I don't know. But it is a trippy vision because he says, These that you've seen go to the north, they have quieted my spirit up there. Which comes back to, there was something going on in the northlands that was disrupting God and God wanted peace. And those horses went up there, that chariot, and when they came back, it was all quiet up there. evidently the four spirits of the heavens with their divine chariots pulled by spirit horses patrol the earth NASB talks about they patrol the earth in Zechariah's day the spirits that went into the north country appeased God's wrath in that land whatever was going on up there stopped that is active judgment Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed active judgment whatever happened there in the book of Isaiah active judgment Whatever happened in the Northland, we don't know what was going on or who was up there, but it stopped because God said, ah, that's better. That's better. And history doesn't even record what happened. But when the patrolling angel in his chariots, you know, chariots are all about war. They're, they didn't have uber chariots. <laughs> it wasn't like you pick somebody up. This is all about war. They're on patrol. And the Lord says, my spirit is disrupted. It's grieved up there. Go deal with that. And when they came back, all quiet on the western front. Active judgment tends to be a one-and-done event, like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament or the deaths of King Herod or Ananias and Sapphira in the Acts. It's one-and-done. And you're going to see this is, a, this is in contrast to the concept of passive judgment which is not killing people or destroying nations or cities. Uh, Passive judgment is not a demonstration of God's aggression against sin but rather God's departure from the sinful party. That's going to be a very mind-blowing lesson next week, lesson six, because you're going to see this concept of divine hedges and sin tears those down and them being torn down is God's judgment. He just walks away and you and I get to experience everything He kept back from us that we had no idea he was keeping back from us. And it's in those moments when everything begins to fall apart in our life, like Job, we need to ask ourselves, what went wrong? And remember, all these escalating terms and back to our positive and negative spectrum, every escalation should bring us back to the very beginning of self-judgment. Why am I being rebuked? That's self-judgment. Why is God resisting me? That's self-judgment. When you ask those questions, that's self-judgment. When things begin to fall apart in your life, you have to ask yourself, what did I do wrong? We don't blame God. God is true. Every man is a liar. God is righteous. Lord, I had so much favor over here. It's gone. What what did I do wrong? Lord, I'm a tither. Am I a tither? The devourer should be rebuked. Why is the devourer eating my lunch and my kids' lunch? What's going on? Everything in the spectrum of judgment is designed to bring us back to self-judgment, so that we can be self-regulating, self-critical. And when you self-judge all the time, you don't care if anybody else judges you. Only lame-brain, arrogant people who never evaluate themselves are offended at judgment. But if you want better, man, you welcome it. You want a better technique. You want a better way of doing this, a better way of doing that, a better way of being a husband, a better way of being a wife, a parent. You welcome it. But when you're all alone and you're self-righteous, You're just going to run all the way through the negative end of that spectrum real quick. The opposite of self-righteous is self-judgment. Just judge yourself. Active judgment has several of the following components, and this is where I'm really getting into my my working model. This, in a sense, if it was science, this would be a hypothesis. I'm trying to give us a formulation of how this all works as I'm studying all the judgments of the Bible. I hope to, by the time we're done with this, have a giant spreadsheet that I can attach where I'm, I'm trying to go through all the judgments of the entire Bible and systematically categorize them in a spreadsheet so we can see lethal, non-lethal, active, passive, negative, positive. Was there a harbinger? Was there a time of repentance? Did repentance take place? So we can kind of systematically see all the judgments because they revealed to us how God sees sin and how he deals with it and who, who pulls themselves out of the judgment and who doesn't and passes on and is destroyed. Other than that, we're just kind of shooting from the hip, trying to make God in our image, and God is not a black woman named Oprah Winfrey. I only say that because when I was in um, school, I was in a technical writing class, and my professor, she she liked to quote this 1960s philosopher who said, "I have met God, and she is black." And then that that came up again when that book, The Shack, was written. And the author of The Shack presented God, the Father, as an overweight black woman. And I thought, I've met this demon before in undergrad, when I was in college. And so I thought, wrong on both parts. God is a spirit, and he's a father. And if he's anything, he's a Jew. But we have made God like Oprah, always encouraging, always loving. Everybody gets a car. That's TBN gospel for you. And that's not the fullness of our God. So we, sometimes we got to put aside all the sugar stuff that God wants to give us and look at the other aspects of his nature and say, yeah, he's not just Jehovah Raphaim, my healer, he's Jehovah Maki, my smiter. And when he smote me, then I sought him. So that's why we have to study all of this. Active judgment has several of the following components. Number one, What we see in the pattern over and over again is a forewarning. God seldom, if ever, just shows up and just wipes things out. There's always a forewarning because he's merciful. He's long-suffering. He's just. It would be unjust of God not to warn before totally destroying a person or people. He is, after all, a God of long-suffering, and he is always mercifully calling mankind to repentance. The only, so far in my studies, the only act of judgment that had no forewarning that I can find is the Tower of Babel. And yet, nobody was destroyed, just their unity. He didn't wipe anybody out. He just destroyed their project and he created the languages, and he created the nations, and they began to be settled into their borders, and it was all God's plan. That was a divine act of judgment without any warning and yet no personal injury. So that one is kind of an outlier in our data set. So we hold that one out there like, okay, well, I don't know what to make of it, but because of it, we have nations and languages and countries and continents. So we'll just put that one out there as something different that doesn't fit the rest, but that doesn't ignore the fact that we have other patterns in play. So there's always a forewarning. Number two, there is typically opportunity for repentance. Many times a season of repentance will be offered in an effort to find mercy and avoid the act of judgment that is impending. As James says, mercy rejoices against judgment. So there's always a time, an opportunity to repent once the forewarning comes. And you'll see this over and over again. There are times, number three, when the act of judgment is an answer to righteous prayer. This may be one of the few times we don't see an opportunity to repent, though there probably was one in the background somewhere. Because God doesn't ever just show up and wipe people out. He always sends a messenger. He sends a Jonah, even reluctantly, to a Nineveh city. He's always sending a word. Even in Romans it says, all of creation, Psalm says it too, testifies. And they know God, but they don't want to know him. So they're without excuse. There are times when God's divine judgment is poured out upon the wicked in answer to his people's prayers. The Bible presents several such prayers. They are called prayers of imprecation, which means to invoke or call down curses. The destruction of Egypt was in response to Israel's enslaved cry. David was a master of imprecatory prayer. And you can see imprecatory prayers in Psalms 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, 17, 28, 31, yada, 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 140 and 141. Amen. David was in the habit of when he got backed into a corner and he was a gracious king, he said, Lord, do your thing. Wipe them out. Let their teeth be broken. Let their posterity be cut off. Let their children be orphans and their wife a widow. Let their days be few and another take their office. May your angel persecute them. May they be as chaff before the angel of God. That's judgment. And that's an answer to prayer. But you had to know if you were picking a fight with David, you were asking for it my dad taught me when I was five in Louisiana son never start a fight always finish it (laughs) what kind of advice is that to a five-year-old boy I don't want you to ever start a fight but if you find yourself in one, you better make sure you finish it boy like man up yes sir (laughs) can I go get on my big wheel now (laughs) go troll for a fight we were having court on the cob last night and I wasn't paying attention. Bud Bud, who's two, he's trying to do corn on the cob. He keeps pulling the little pokers out, which is dangerous. He's having trouble. He doesn't get it. And I guess he didn't like the texture. And I hear mama say, Justice, man up, son. That's corn on the cob. Get after it. I'm like, whoa. Yeah, we're going to man up. Like, corn shame a two-year-old boy. I said, that's toxic masculinity coming out of my wife. A feminist studies major would head would blow up. "You're going to be a man in this household. you're going to eat corn on the cob like a man." Yeah, that's right, son. Listen to mama. <laughs> this is why they don't want us homeschooling our kids, because we influence them too much, because they take on the convictions and the culture of mom and dad, and that's bad for world globalism. Amen. Because my, my older girls, they want to know why all of our neighbors are pagans and going to hell. Because they've caught our convictions. And they're just smart enough and naive enough to not have any tact. Why don't you go to church? Shh, stop. Stop. Daddy has to look at them every time he's cutting the grass or out in the yard. Stop. That's why they want to raise our children for us. Jesus declared very plainly that God would avenge the elect in response to their prayers. Paul invoked the judgment of God upon Alexander the coppersmith for the harm done. Now imagine that. He told Timothy, beware Alexander. The Lord reward him according to his deeds, so he has resisted us mightily. This is Paul. He's contacting the Better Business Bureau over this coppersmith and saying, this guy's a jerk, he hates the gospel, and I'm praying against him. And then he's telling Timothy, he's in your town, don't give him any business and keep him out of your church and don't let anybody else fellowship with him. That's judgment, that's active judgment. That is God's apostle and God's pastor being told by the Holy Ghost to actively resist you and pray against your business. I thought we were supposed to love our neighbors and pray for those that despitefully use us and persecute us. Or there's other data points called other scripture that help balance the doctrine. Amen. Amen. The fourth thing you'll always see about active judgment is there is a decisive action. It isn't like the passive judgment we'll look at next week where things just begin to slowly fall apart and you begin to realize, my life isn't as good as it once was. There's a just boom, the hammer has dropped, and you know something has happened. After a forewarning and a window of repentance, in order for active judgment to be active... The actual judgment is generally very definitive. That is, there is no room for doubt that God's wrath is at work. For example, Adam and Eve's expulsion, Noah's flood, Sodom's destruction, etc. There is no mistaken that this was the hand of God and you have been judged. Act of judgment isn't necessarily fatal, and that's something I've got to point out. It doesn't have to necessarily be fatal. Adam and Eve being expelled was not fatal. Tower of Babel was not fatal. But it is very decisive, definite, and indisputable. In a word, it is life-altering. And if it isn't fatal, rejoice, because you have opportunity to repent and get back. Examples of non-lethal act of judgment include Miriam, King Uzziah, and Gehazi becoming lepers or leprous. E- 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 Elamis, the sorcerer, being struck blind, or the Ephesian church having their lamp taken away from them. Those are examples of active judgment, but they're not fatal. But then again, if a church loses its anointing, that might be just as good as fatal. So let's, I got a list of about seven or eight um, examples of active judgment. Let's run through this really quick, all right? Studying examples of the active judgment of God will help us to know his character and nature much better. I, and I'm teaching this because our modern church wants to believe God doesn't judge anymore, that we're saved by grace that anything goes, grace covers it. Who are we to judge? We're supposed to love everybody and accept everybody and use everybody, and that's just a lie from the enemy. Sounds really good. It sounds really secular and progressive. It sounds very Unitarian to me. And I remind you that the kingdom is very exclusive. You have to please God to get in. It has been suggested by some that God no longer judges nations, cities, people, or even churches. As proof, it has been suggested that much of the demonstrable judgments of God recorded in the Bible were in relation to his covenant with Israel. And since we are the church, those kinds of divine activities are no longer active toward the church or the nations of the earth. And this is, of course, false. Studying active judgment and the patterns presented thereby will help us to understand the God who changes not. So original sin. Here's our first. We've got just a few examples. Adam and Eve were forewarned. So we're going to run through some examples and see this pattern present itself over and over again. Adam and Eve were forewarned, don't eat of the tree. They rebelled, and they, Satan, and the earth were all cursed in one swift declaration. That's the judgment. Adam and Eve were also expelled from the Garden of Eden. And here we see two of our criteria. They were forewarned, and there was a decisive action against sin. Forewarning and decisive action. Forewarning and decisive action. So two of our four criteria. Number two, Noah's flood. The sins of man's heart grieved God. Noah was commissioned to build the ark. The 120-year building project offered plenty of time for repentance as Noah preached righteousness and warned of the coming judgment. He wasn't just a boat builder. He's called a preacher of righteousness. He wasn't just preaching to his family. You know he's preaching to everybody who came to look at the project. Ultimately, the flood took away all the wicked and their sin. Here we see three of our criteria. We see forewarning, that's Noah's preaching, a season of repentance, that's 120 years of boat building, and decisive action against sin, that's the flood. And once it's done, boom, there's no turning back. You know it has been done. Number three, Sodom and Gomorrah. The king of Sodom was present at the communion service between Abraham and Melchizedek, so you know a gospel message was presented there. And Sodom, the king of Sodom, would have heard Melchizedek said, Blessed art the God of Abram. And certainly you are more blessed than he because you have given tithes to me. He heard the blessing proclaimed. He saw the miraculous upon a man named Abram who served the living God. And yet Sodom took that message back to Sodom, the king of Sodom, and did nothing with it. So there's that opportunity, that forewarning in time of repentance. Why he failed to take that message back to Sodom is a great mystery. Lot was known as a just man, yet his testimony fell upon hard hearts. Even Abraham interceded face to face for mercy from the Lord. So you see a lot of mercy being extended to Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't just show up and wipe them out. Decades of mercy, decades of of testimony, decades of intercession. Unfortunately, nothing worked, so active judgment fell. Here we see three of our criteria. Forewarning, that would be Lot's testimony, Melchizedek's communion service and blessing. We see a window for repentance that was opened through Abraham's intercession, and decisive action, fire and brimstone wiping the, the cities roundabout off the map. Ten plagues of Egypt. The famous ten plagues of Egypt are perfect examples or are, are a perfect example of active judgment. They serve as warnings and catalysts for repentance, as there was a delay and escalation between each plague. Each time they sent a plague. Moses would say, just let the people go, or it's gonna get worse. So the fact that there's 10 of them is a demonstration of mercy. And they didn't happen 10 days in a row. There's tremendous periods of time in between each one. They began with disgusting inconveniences like frogs and flies. Nothing lethal, just gross. You can't sleep. You got flies in your nose, flies in your mouth, flies in your ears, flies in your soup. Flies, flies, and more flies, frogs everywhere. And then they die. And then it stinks. And they ramp up to destruction and death hail, locusts, death of livestock, and firstborn. Here we see all four of our criteria at play forewarning, Moses predicted each one. A window for repentance, let my people go or it will get worse. An answer to prayer, I have heard their cry. And decisive action, ten plagues escalating and in the Red Sea. There was no doubt that this was the hand of God. Honestly, the 10 plagues may be one of the greatest demonstrations of mercy in the entire Old Testament. I like what one person pointed out. God killed their firstborn because Pharaoh had ordered the murder of all the babies. You reap what you sow. But he gave them nine chances before he started killing the firstborn. How about the death of Korah? Datham and Abiram, we covered that Wednesday night. Little did these men know that, the, uh, that these men, eh, we've got a redundancy there. Little did these men know that their plot to overthrow Moses and Aaron would end in a bizarre death. Moses begged them to repent, but after the Lord declared his severe displeasure, Moses pronounced their death sentence. Here we see all four of our criteria demonstrated. Forewarning, opportunity to repent, An answer to prayer, Moses declared their judgment before it happened, and then a decisive action. (laughs) So we're seeing examples here. Let's jump ahead in the timeline. Those are out of the first couple books of the Bible in the Torah. Let's jump ahead to Samuel. How about David's death sentence? When God rebuked David for his adultery and the murder of Uriah, he proclaimed many judgments against him that mirrored his own atrocities. Pay attention to this. Because you killed Uriah with the sword, God said the sword will never leave your house. Because you attacked another man's household, your household will rise up against you. Because you slept with your neighbor's wife, your neighbor will sleep with your wives. Because you did all of this secretly, I will do all this openly before all of Israel and under the sun. And that's the man after God's own heart. What is so powerful about this story is it shows that God does not play favorites. He is just in all of his judgments, and he doesn't care who you are or what you used to do for him. You stay right with God, or he'll make it right. The one that breaks my heart the most is he says, you slept with your neighbor's wife in private, and your neighbor will sleep with your concubines in front of everybody else. And that's exactly what happened. Absalom, his own son, took all of his dad's concubines and had sex with them on the rooftop of the buildings for all to see. This is King David. But David quickly repented and avoided death. Like David interrupts Nathan's judgment proclamation and says, I am guilty, I've sinned against the Lord. And the next words out of Nathan's mouth are, you will not die. Because to me, that implies the next thing that was about to be said was going to be his death. You killed a man, therefore you will die. But the son of his adultery did not escape that death. Here we see three of our criteria. Forewarning, which was in the law, and David knew the law. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie. Pretty basic. He just blew through all through all of those Opportunity for repentance every step of the way in his scheme and during Nathan's parable. You got to think, we taught on this a while back, for Nathan, excuse me, for David to commit adultery and to cover it up took months because they're away at battle. Uriah's at the battle. There's no Instagram. There's no texting. He has to send messengers. It's a lot of coming and going. Furthermore, it's when he should have been at war. David should have been away at war. The Bible says when the time for the kings to be at war came, David was at home. Why was he at home? He's the military strategist. Why is he not out there with them? Plenty of opportunity to repent. And then decisive action, David completely reaped everything he had sown. This judgment greatly humbled him and caused him to return to the God he had neglected. He was a much more humble man after that and and gladly took any abuse given to him by his sons and his enemies. And it was his men around him that had to defend him and prop him up and encourage him. How about the Lord's crucifixion, number seven? The Lord's crucifixion is the ultimate example of active judgment. Jesus Christ became sin for us, was cursed for us because of that sin, and stricken, smitten, afflicted, and punished by God for that sin, but for us. Jesus was judged for our sin. In Christ's suffering and atonement, we see three of our criteria. Forewarning. Sin must be punished, and the Redeemer would be punished for us. An answer to prayer, all before Christ prayed for his coming, and decisive action. He was crucified, buried, and resurrected again. So we see active judgment against the Son of God for us. And unless we think like the heretics that Jesus is the one that got saved at the cross, number eight is just a list of New Testament examples. Unless we should think that the cross of Calvary eliminated active judgment, let us be reminded of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, the blinding of Elymas, the sorcerer, the death of King Herod, the delivering of Satan, uh, to Satan of Hymenaeus, Alexander, and the Corinthians adulterer, and the entire book of Revelation. It's just one big book of active judgment. This list obviously could be much, much longer, and that's what I hope to present to you in the spreadsheet in the next few weeks, the purpose is to present the concept of the swift, decisive, and active judgment of God. Yes, he is long-suffering, but he is not forever suffering. And so let us be exhorted, like Psalm 2:12 says, Do homage to the Son, or King James says, Kiss the Son, submit to him, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So take refuge in him, or at least honor him, but don't set yourself against him, because even the son can become angry, and you'll be the thing that perishes. Everybody understands it. If the boss is angry, just get out of his way. If mom or dad's angry, just get out of their way. Ecclesiastes says if the spirit of your boss is angry against you, just chill, hold your peace, and pacify that great anger. What we're dealing with active judgment is people that are just so dumb deliberate, stubborn, and hostile. They just dare God to lift a hand against them. And he doesn't have to lift a hand against them. He just has to breathe on them. So hopefully this concept has become clear. What's going to help us is next week when we look at passive judgment and we compare those two, a lot of what we fall under is passive judgment. And uh, I'll probably give my opinion as to what Maybe the coronavirus fits in under passive judgment because when a nation begins to walk away from God, protections and defenses are lifted and all sorts of weird, corrupt things enter in. Sickness is just part of the curse. And when you're not blessed of God, you get to partake of the curse. Amen. Father, we thank you for these lessons today. May they speak to us. May they minister to us. May we hear your character, your nature, and may we do something about it. Father, may we be like you, may we be merciful, but may we also be wise and adequate in our judgment. Bless all those that listen in the future, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.